All right, so again, we are in the Gospel of Mark. We're taking it chapter by chapter, half a chapter a week, and we will end with the Gospel of Mark right at Advent, and so just in time to start Advent. So tonight, we're going to do the first half of Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. So I'm going to start with 1 to 9. I'm going to read through 1 to 9, and then we'll give some brief explanation. Here's a preview of what tonight's going to look like. There are multiple layers to the gospel of Mark, multiple layers. What we're going to do is we're going to go through the entire surface level and look at the facts, look at the geography, look at the teaching, and explain whatever might be confusing. But then we're going to take a second trip through very quickly and look at what's going on underneath the surface. What is Mark saying about us, about the Pharisees, and about the disciples here? So we're going to briefly fly through the surface of it, and then we're going to go a level underneath. But let's start with Mark 8, 1 to 9, and let's read together. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks... He broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. This is a different account than earlier in Mark. So yes, you, might, you may have been hearing this read and been like, wait, haven't we been here already in this series? Didn't Eddie preach on this just a few weeks ago? And the answer is yes. But this is a separate event. And, and you can take the text if you want. Here's an exercise for you at home. Open up your, your Bible app and put... Uh, the earlier version of the 5,000 and put this version of the 4,000 and just look at the differences. There's many differences. I don't have time to go through all the differences, but just in the people alone, there was 5,000 men plus women and children at the first feeding. And here we have 4,000 people. So probably in total, 4,000 people. You'll notice at the end of verse 8 there, or sorry, 9, and there were about 4,000 people not just men, but people in total. And so this is a different event. And there's a, a, a continued teaching of Jesus to the disciples. But here is another thing that's happening here that we don't recognize if we just look at the surface. One, the first feeding of the 5,000 took place in Jewish territory, Jewish geography. And so we could say that mainly those in the first episode of the feeding of the 5,000 were Jewish. And you remember, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. In fact, even Romans 1.16, written to the church at Rome by the Apostle Paul, the, the apostle to the Gentiles said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and then the Gentile, or and also the Gentile. And see, the idea was Jesus came to his own, John 1, and his own received him not. You see, all through the Old Testament, the Messiah was promised, and Jesus was coming, though they did not know it was Jesus. And he came to his own first. And so the first time, he did this miracle to his own people, Jewish people. Well, this time, he is on the west side uh, of the, I'm sorry, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. So you have the Sea of Galilee here. I'll show you a map later. And he's on the east side. Think like Philadelphia, New Jersey, you know, Virginia's. He's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which is Gentile territory. 
Okay? And so this feeding of the 4,000 is probably mainly Gentiles. And so they had not experienced this miracle yet. And here's one of the differences I want you to see. Look into the text. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Okay. So he calls the disciples... And he says something about what's going on internally in him. He says, I have compassion on the crowds. Now, this word compassion means it's, it's an inner bodily sense that Jesus has. We could say it's inward affection rising for the crowd. He not just has pity on them, but he has a longing to meet their need. He sees that they are sheep without a shepherd, even though he doesn't say that, this is the way he's viewing them. And he has compassion on them. He has inner affection and emotion welling up. And he wants to not just meet their spiritual need, which he has done. How many days have they been with him so far? Three days. Do you know how many days the other crowd of the 5,000 plus women and children were there? One day. So here's something I want you to see. These Gentiles are hungry, man. Not just physically, but spiritually. Man, they have been sitting here glued to Jesus' teaching for three days. Imagine that. Now, no doubt if you were going out into the wilderness in a desolate place, because we learn later it's a desolate place, if you were going out there, you would have taken some food with you. But by now, after three days, it's gone. Your food is gone. But yet, they're still there with him. It shows that these Gentiles had a hunger for what Jesus was teaching. And you remember earlier in the book of Mark, he, he is being crowded by the Jews, and he says, I must go to other towns and preach there also, for this is why I came. I came to preach. And what did he come to preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because the king is at hand. And watch me rule by feeding the hungry, by casting out demons, by healing disease, by raising the dead, by giving sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. Watch me exercise my authority over my realm as king. Watch me banish the curse and the effects of the curse. In real time, the king has come. This is what he was preaching. But he must have been preaching more than just that because that only took me under a minute to say. So he was probably teaching Sermon on the Mount material. He's probably teaching parables with explanations. He's teaching for three days. And now he says, they've been with me for a long time and they need to eat. And so now he gets the disciples involved and he's training them. This is a training opportunity for the disciples. Hey, we did this once already, guys. Let's see what you do this time. He called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. This is Psalm 103, 13 to 14, and I think this is a perfect foreshadowing of Jesus. Look, as a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, or you could translate, he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Jesus understands that he is dealing with creatures here. They need to eat. They need to drink. If they don't, they will, if long enough without food or drink, die. They will faint along the way. He wants to care for their creatureliness. He cares about not just their spiritual needs and their intellectual needs, but he cares about their physical needs. God made us to need. Do you realize that? Have you ever thought about that? What happens to you if you don't get good sleep? What happens the next day? Now, some of you who are strong among us might be like, nothing, nothing. I'm, I'm 100%, you know. Okay, two days. Maybe two days, three hours of sleep. You're a wreck. I mean, listen, if my little two-year-old doesn't get his nap, he becomes a demon. And you're like, you're possessed. He's rolling around, foaming at the mouth. I'm exaggerating a little bit. But even if he doesn't get a nap, you see it almost hours after nap time. And, and, and man, don't let daylight savings time happen because the kids become terrorists the next day. 
because they've lost an hour of sleep. It's crazy. And the idea is we, we are so needy as people. We need sleep. We need food. We need relationships. We need God. Man cannot live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth. We are so needy. And you know what? It's okay to say, I am needy. And you know, it's arrogance to say, I am not needy. I don't need nothing. I mean, that's just arrogance, and you're not living in accord with your creatureliness. You are a creature, and it's okay to say, I have needs beyond what I realize. And you know who promises to meet our needs? Jesus, our Father in heaven, and the Holy Spirit. And though all our needs might not get met the way we want them met immediately when we ask, all our needs will get met by God's wisdom. That's what we need to understand. And oftentimes, that thing we wanted so bad or that event we wanted to change or this circumstance we wanted out of so bad, when we look back at it years later with perspective, we're like, that was brilliant, God, what you did there. Though at the time, we're praying our way out of it. We're agonizing our way out of it. We're pleading our way out of it. And we're like, God, how could you perhaps let this happen to me? Or how could you be doing this? The point is, we are needy and we are perspectiveless in comparison to God. God's perspective stretches into eternity and backwards into eternity, and we don't even know what's going to happen tonight. We are so small, and you know what? It's really good for you to say yes and amen to that reality. It's really good for you. It literally frees you and releases you from so much pressure that you put on yourself. You are not even a demigod, you are very small. You are a creature, but you know what? You're God's creature. You're God's creature. And look at this. He knows our frame. He knows how we are formed. How are we formed? He remembers that we are dust, hearkening back to the creation of Adam out of the dirt. He understands we're, we're just made of dirt. We are needy, and he comes and provides for our needs now, here's a question I want to ask, application question. Jesus sees a lump of people, Jews and Gentiles, if we take the feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, and his heart goes out to them. He has compassion on them. His inner affection wells up to the point where he does good to them in teaching and in feeding. And then in, at the same time, he's training the disciples to also be like him in his compassion. Here's the question for us. This text says, if you're a Christian, the reason God predestined you before the foundation of the world was to conform you to the image of Jesus. How's your compassion level? How is it? When you see crowds of people, do you see people you wish didn't exist? Do you see people that you wish would just go away? Do you see people that would just leave you alone? Or do you have compassion? Because people are like sheep without a shepherd. They have no guide. They have no one to lead them. They are, in a sense, their own God, most of them. Or they are worshiping false gods, idols who cannot save and who only enslave. Friends, it should not surprise us that sinners sin and act like sinners. And though in one respect, that's repulsive, and God is repulsed by sinners sinning. But at the same time, do you think this crowd of Gentiles, this 4,000 here, were sinless people? No, they were sinners just like us. They were in need just like us. People are people regardless if there's 2,000 years removed. And so no doubt there were marriage problems and children problems and lust problems and racism problems and political problems, all kind of problems here in these 4,000. And Jesus' attitude towards them is not, why won't they just leave me alone or why won't they just get it together or I wish I could just judge them now. No, he has compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he meets their spiritual needs by teaching them, revealing himself, and then he meets their physical needs by feeding them. So let's look at that. Verse 4, before we leave 3, look at the end of 3, and some of them have come from far away. I love that. So these people are so hungry that they're literally coming out, probably walking, 
maybe on horse or donkey, but probably walking, and they're coming from far distances to hear Jesus teach, and then they, they're like, I'm, I'm not moving until you move. And so what does this show? This shows a level of spiritual hunger that even the crowds in the Jewish categories were just not having. He would tell a parable, and then he would go inside, and only those who were hungry would say, explain to us the parables. To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom. Here we see a hunger. I'm sure that he wasn't just teaching parables, but he was explaining parables because they're coming from afar, hungry, spiritually hungry, and then their spiritual hunger led to a physical hunger. Friends, I want us to be this hungry, and I know that I can't produce it in you. Only the living God by the Spirit can produce spiritual hunger in you. But you know what happens if you ignore the prompting of the Spirit to engage in the disciplines of grace? Then you get less hungry and more apathetic and more interested in lesser things and lesser things till you're just cold to all things spiritual. And even coming to worship God on a Sunday evening for an hour and a half is a chore to you. You're just like, this is a chore. Like, I could be doing so much better doing something else. That is a sign that you have grown cold. That if you can't even worship God or have a hunger to... Now, on the other side, I want to say I understand that we are creatures and that we are needy and even our spiritual senses dull, right? Anyone been there? And so what do we say in those times? We say, I believe, oh God, help my unbelief. That's the next chapter of Mark. Oh God, I'm apathetic. Help my apathy. I want to want, God. Please help me. Because even the wanting to want is something, isn't it? And so my admonition is for us, like, look, if you're apathetic in this season, call out to God for help, and he will meet your need. And then take some action. Didn't James tell us in his book over and over again that faith takes action? So take some action, pick up your Bible, put some scriptures in a prominent place and start to memorize. Listen to some Bible teaching online. Do something, pray, set a timer on your phone for 20 minutes and say, for 20 minutes I am praying. No matter how hard it gets and no matter how many distractions come in, 20 minutes, right now I'm doing it. And pray. Take action. Let your faith be expressed and watch if God doesn't add to that little flame. And oh, that God would just dump some gasoline on what little flame is there that we might wake up. Okay, so what is the disciples' reaction? And his disciples answered him, typical disciples, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? That's where I got the desolate place from earlier. Like, there's no markets here. There's nowhere to get bread. There's no bakeries, no Panera breads. What, where are we supposed to get this food? And I could see Jesus... Just kind of hands on his head, shaking his head like, you still have not learned the lesson, have you? And so he asked them a, a similar and familiar question. How many loaves do you have? What do you got? Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. Now, that few small fish right there is literally like sardines, like little tiny scraps of fish. This isn't, you know, huge uh, Alaskan salmon. This isn't the, the tuna North Carolina, you know, fishing trip. This is little tiny on your pizza. But you know what? Jesus can work with that. And so he breaks the seven loaves. And he begins to dish out the little fish. And, and, and my imagination is he takes it and he just breaks a piece and he gives some to the disciples. And he just keeps doing it and they keep coming back. And it just never runs out. In this miraculous way, it just never runs out. And he just keeps dishing, 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 dishing. From his hand, it's multiplying as he's passing it out. Until, look at this. And having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. I love it. So it wasn't just you get a snack. This is like you at the buffet and you're like, oh, I can't do it again. But I didn't get any fruit yet. So I need, so give me a little bit more fish, just a little bit. And so you're like, oh my gosh, you're satisfied. You can't eat anymore. You're to the point of, I'm good. 
I'm all good. And then Jesus does that familiar thing that he did before. Hey, go pick up the scraps, guys. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. Now, that little word basket there is different than the word basket in the earlier uh, account. So check this out. This word basket in Greek is literally, it means hamper, like your clothes basket. And it was large enough for Paul to fit into and be lowered down the Damascus wall. You remember that story in Acts 9? Paul's preaching Jesus and they want to execute him because wasn't this the same one who tried to to destroy this faith and this name this way? And now he's preaching this one that he tried to destroy. And so they put a hit out on him. They're plotting. And so the disciples lower him through the Damascus wall in one of these hampers. Look, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, named Saul prior to. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. So watching the main entrance and exit out of the city. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a hamper. Seven hampers. Can you believe that? Look at this. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven hampers full. So you can imagine John with this massive thing. They only had seven little loaves and a few little fish. What is Jesus doing here to the disciples? I I don't know if the crowd even realized that a miracle happened. All they probably knew is they were getting fed. I mean, maybe they were like, where's all this bread coming from? But the disciples knew. Because they were the ones who were passing it out. And they were the ones who knew we only started with seven loaves and a few anchovies. How can this be? And Jesus is showing them who he is. He is displaying his glory. He's like, look, I'm the author of the grain and the yeast and whatever other elements you got in this bread. You got some poppy seeds in there. What is this bread? Is this cranberry bread? Is this raisin bread? Whatever kind it is, he is the author and he can easily multiply it because he did it in the first time when he said, let there be wheat and cranberries and raisins and poppy seeds. I mean, this is the Lord of glory displaying his glory to bless people. All right, let's move on to the next account in Mark 8. So the next account is a separate event where Jesus encounters his familiar enemies, the Pharisees. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha, what a strange word. Now this, here's a map. I literally took this uh, from a picture from the uh, Biblical Theology Study Bible. I took my phone and I lined it up real carefully, boom, and I shot it and I transferred it to the slide for you. And so here's the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was down here and he comes right to this place called Magdala, Magdala, because this Dalmanutha is not known. But we think that the region of Dalmanutha was here at Magdala. It's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is down in this area here doing the feeding of the 4,000. He goes across the, uh, the Sea of Galilee to right there. And here's what happens. Immediately, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came. Remember, this is Jewish territory now. It's the east, I'm sorry, the west side of the Sea of Galilee. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. That's important, to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into a boat again and went to the other side. So across the Sea of Galilee, opposition and right Right back across again. Why this little exchange? Now, we could think, okay, what just came before it? Well, the hungry Gentile crowds who were eager to hear from Jesus. He goes to the other side, and these are the religious leaders of the day. They are the most strict adherents to the traditions of the elders and the interpretation of the scribes of the law and what the law particularly said to the point of straining their drinking water so that they wouldn't drink accidentally an unclean bug 
That's how serious these guys are. And so they want a sign from him, but it's a sign to test him. They're saying, we'll believe, but you need to perform something huge. Now think about it. From this time, he had already done many, many signs. He healed the man with the withered hand right in front of them. He raised the paralytic right in front of them to the point where they said, he blasphemes. Who can forgive sin but God alone? So you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, take up your mat and walk. And the paralytic stands up, fully restored in his legs and his limbs, and they're like, he casts out demons. And what is the Pharisee's response? By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. He is full of Beelzebul. And so they've seen the signs. They don't need another sign. But what they want from him is they probably want the sun to stand still, like in Joshua. They want God to descend in thick darkness and thunder and lightning like Sinai. They want something big. And Jesus is like, you know what? What does he say? Why does this generation seek a sign? Now, generation means disbelieving Jewish religious leaders of his day who refused to believe what he already gave and said, no, I need more evidence, I need more evidence, I need more evidence. But really, they had already made up in their mind, if this guy is anything, he is satanic. Their minds were made up. And so Jesus says, you know what, I'm I'm not going to respond to your unbelief like that. You are hard-hearted, you are hypocritical, you are unbelieving, and I am not going to give you what you ask because, listen, they're not asking with genuine faith, wanting to see the Lord of glory. No, they want to trap him, they want to test him. This is their game they've been playing since day one when he appeared. And so he refuses, but look at verse 12, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. So this is a, what's happening here is Jesus is one, he's marveling and baffled at their unbelief and hard-heartedness, and it grieves him. It grieves him that their creator and sustainer and possible potential savior is right in front of them, and they have concluded that he is demonic. It troubles his soul. I feel the weight of this all the time. I don't know if you feel this way, but I look at the brokenness of the world. I even, this, this is how strange I am. I go into to bathrooms and I look at the tile and I, and I see it twisted or I look at things that are cracked in plaster and I'm like, why can't it just be perfect? I, I long for perfection. I long for good attitudes in my children and in myself. I long for, for days of bright sunshine and less cloudy rain. And yet, is Jesus doing the same thing here? He's looking at the curse and its effects and the satanic influence in the first century. And here comes the Lord of glory. In him is light and no darkness at all. And yet darkness just keeps trying to swallow him alive. And he's, no sign will be given you. Do you you guys ever feel that way? Or is it just me? You long for the breaking in of belief and faith and light and bright and new heavens and new earth and a banishing of disbelief and darkness and Satan and all that is against the moral law of God. I can't wait, friends. I can't wait for the weapons of war to be made into farming utensils and the earth produce like we've never seen it produced before. I can't wait for you to treat me 100% of the time with love and respect like 1 Corinthians 13 says you should, and I can't wait to treat you 100% of the time with love and respect like 1 Corinthians 13 says I should. Love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it doesn't keep records of wrongs and so on. Oh, I long for that day, friends. And you, you think Jesus didn't long for this at his coming? The King, the Lord of glory, the author of light, the Savior. And what is he met with? Satanic, hypocritical, hard-hearted opposition and unbelief and dullness in the closest of his disciples. 
not seeing over and over and over again who he is and what he came for. All right, let's move on. Last section, and then we're going to very quickly go a level deeper. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread. Now, remember, he meets the Pharisees. They want some kind of sign because they're testing him. He refuses to give them the sign, and so they go back now to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, like northeast, okay? And, and the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. Now watch this. They had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Now you can imagine, even, even if it's that big French bread one from, from Panera, that big long thing is not going to help 13 dudes. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just not going to be enough. Even if you had some breadcrumbs, you're just like... And so they're afraid. They're like, oh no, we've, they, they made a blunder. They forgot to, to keep supplies. You know, we, we learn in the book of John that Judas is the one who kept the money so that they could keep well supplied. You learn in John 4 that the disciples go to the market to buy food for them to eat, and Jesus meets the woman at the well, and he's meeting her spiritual needs, and they're going to, to do the physical needs thing. And he cautioned them saying, now, here's what happens. They're worried about bread. Jesus is thinking on a whole other level, and they totally miss each other. Look. He cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And, and so Jesus is speaking spiritually or metaphorically. He always does this. And, and it was like whoosh, right over their heads. If you like Guardians of the Galaxies, Drax, the metaphors right over the head. I'm too fast, I would catch them. It could never be. So the idea here is he, he's speaking metaphorically and it's right over their heads. They just don't get it. And they think he's upset that they only brought one loaf of bread. Now, yeast in the Bible is a deep concept and it goes all the way back to the Exodus. And we don't have time to pull that apart, but in the Exodus, in the Passover, the Jews were not to put leaven in the bread. Leaven is yeast that makes the bread rise. In fact, what they would do is they would leaven their dough for the day, then they would even cut off a little piece of that, set it aside, and then that would re-leaven or re-yeast the next day's bread, and you could cut that off. And what happens is you put a little bit of yeast in, and it works its way through the whole bread, causes it to rise, and it's a crucial ingredient for bread. Well, because the Jews had to exit so fast because the death angel was coming and Egypt was going to kick them out very fast, they were not allowed to leaven the bread. They had to not be able to wait for it to rise, so no yeast. Yeast, all through the scriptures, almost always has a negative connotation to it, and it looks like how sin and unbelief and hard-heartedness works its way into something good, and then it permeates the whole thing, because that's what yeast does to dough. It works its way in, and then it spreads throughout the whole thing. And so Jesus is saying, listen, guys, listen, guys, beware, watch out of the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What is he talking about? Well, he is warning them here, you guys need to watch out for the heart attitude of the Pharisees and Herod, and you need to watch out that that attitude of unbelief and hypocrisy Remember, he calls them hypocrites over and over and over throughout the Gospels. They have a hard-hearted resistance to Jesus' claims as king, as son of God, as Lord. And so they continue to hard-heartedly, self-righteously, hypocritically resist him. Well, what about Herod? Well, he showed up earlier with John the Baptist. Do you remember that? So Herod is this power-hungry Disciples are often power hungry. In fact, they're, they're arguing among themselves who is the greatest. <laughs> they, they want to sit beside Jesus when he comes into his glory, so much so that James and John got their mom to ask Jesus for the right and left seat when he comes into power. They're power hungry. And, and not only that, but Herod acted expediently before his dinner guests. He knew John was a prophet. He knew he was a holy man. He protected him from Herodias. And yet because he wanted the respect of his guests, he did what he knew was wrong, compromised, acted expediently, and had John the Baptist executed so that he would look good in front of his guests. And he's warning of all these negative influences coming into the disciples' faith and permeating their faith and ruining it. Beware. 
of the leaven, the yeast, the hard-heartedness, the hypocritical resistance, the self-righteousness, the unbelief, the power-hungriness, the expediency, the fear of man, and so on and so forth. Beware, disciples. And, and their minds are thinking, oh, he's mad at us because we forgot to bring enough bread. Now, Jesus is, is the master of sentences. He packs volumes into one-sentence metaphors. And yet the disciples are just, shoom, shoom, shoom. They're, just, they're so spiritually dull. And yet it encourages me that Jesus never gives up on them. Because that's me, man, and that's you. Like, how dull are we? And we're like, he's going to give up on me. And yet he continues to work with them. He meets them where they're at. Now he is going to rebuke them. So let's read the rebuke. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? What are you doing? You're totally missing the point. Do you not yet perceive or understand? And and notice he's going to hammer them with several questions here. Just question after question after. And each question is a rebuke. Each one. Why are you discussing the fact that you have have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do not see. Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Question, 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 all rebukes. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? You remember those little baskets I had you guys go collect to see that there was more than enough when 12, maybe 15,000 people ate from that small amount of, of loaves and fish? How many pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets, how many hampers full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And I could just see him looking down, shaking his head. And he said to them, do you still not yet understand? Like, are you still not getting it? Do you still not understand? And now what I'd like to do is I'd like to run through and look at what's going on underneath the surface here. What Jesus is doing to the crowds and to his disciples here is he is showing them who the Father is and who he is And gradually throughout Mark, we're going to see it next week very clearly, he is revealing to them what the Messiah would come to do in opposition to what they thought the Messiah would come to do. They were looking for a political ruler like King David or Solomon who would take over not only the religious establishment but the political establishment. And he would kick out the oppressing Romans and he would rule and reign and make Israel come to the top of all the peoples again like under Solomon or like under David. And so they they totally missed that Isaiah said, no, the Messiah will be a suffering Messiah, a substitutional Messiah. Messiah. They totally missed it. But Jesus, throughout the Gospels, and especially here to the crowds and to the disciples, he is revealing to them the Father, what the Father's like, and who he is, just like the Father. Now, in John 14, 9 to 11, this is the upper room, the Last Supper. And Philip, the disciple, says, Jesus, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. Just let us see the Father. It's like Moses saying on the mountain, show me your glory. Let us see the Father, and that'll be enough. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe, that question of unbelief again, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his work. That Father dwelling in him is by the Spirit. It's, a, it's an allusion to the Trinity. The Father, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of God. In, in the New Testament, the Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus. He is the Holy Spirit, the third person. Do you not believe that it's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Father in me who does these works? Listen, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, look at this, believe on the account of what? The, the signs, the miracles. Now, what you probably forgot is that last week, Pete ended his sermon with the healing of what? 
Pete, I hope you remember. <laughs> the healing of a deaf man. Do you remember that? And, and so what's happening here underneath the surface that we just uncovered is that this blind man at the end of seven, remember there's no chapter breaks in the original account here. It just goes seven into eight. And so the, the, the deaf man goes right into the feeding of the 4,000 and the disciples are in view here as a parable for this deaf man. They don't hear the teachings of Jesus and understand him. Remember, are you still without understanding? Having ears, do you not hear? Jesus heals and opens the ears of the deaf man just prior to this. And so what's going to happen here is Jesus is going to gradually open the ears of the disciples so that they understand what he's saying. Because right now they don't. And what Mark is doing is in picture form, he's teaching us by parable examples. Jesus heals this deaf man right at the end of seven, and now he is going to, throughout chapter eight, open the ears of the disciples so that they begin to actually hear him and understand. And what, is, what does he want them to understand? He wants them to understand that he has come to reveal the Father and that when he speaks, he speaks on behalf of the Father by the Spirit. And he wants them to believe that the Father is in him on account of what? On account of the works themselves. The feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children. The feeding of the 4,000. The unstopping of the, the, the man who could not hear. The, the letting him hear. The casting out of demons. He's showing them who he is by his works. And some got it. Some got it. No one, Nicodemus said, John 3, can do what you're doing unless God were with him. It's impossible. And so what's happening here with these Pharisees? Remember, we're, we're going a level under. The Pharisees are pictured here as those who refuse to believe. They have closed up their hearts they have rejected Jesus, and you know what Jesus has done to them? Look at this verse here in 13, and he left them. Now that's deeper than just he went into the boat and left them. Have you ever read Romans chapter 1, specifically verses 24, 26, and 28? It's unbelief and worship of false gods and the refusal to believe what they know to be true and God gives them over, God gives them over, God gives them over to their own will and their own false worship and their own hardness of heart. It's a judgment. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, okay, no sign will be given you and you have, you have walled yourself off from me and now as a judgment, I am saying, have it your way. Have it your way. He is now leaving the Pharisees, and in a sense, he's leaving the entire religious system of the day because he has come to usher in a new covenant, and we'll learn that at the Last Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood. They're stuck on the old. They're protecting the old. The old gives them a level of power. They know the rules of the old, and we're not with this new guy, and so he says, okay, I will let you go in your unbelief. Application, friends, where are you? Where are you? The warning here for those who might be hanging around the edge or maybe the, the hard-hearted, disbelieving, skeptical, self-righteous leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod has infiltrated you and it's spreading throughout your entire soul. Perhaps. Listen, as a judgment... God will let you have it your way. He's done it over and over. The scriptures make it clear. This is what he does. And he will have done you no wrong because you want it. And so my admonition to you in this building and you online is where are you? Draw a line in the sand and step over it before God lets you have your own way. It's a serious warning. This is what Mark is saying to us underneath the surface. Are you infiltrated 
by the leaven of the Pharisees? Are you hard-hearted and disbelieving and moving further and further away from Jesus because you love your own way? You refuse to believe based on who he claims to be and who he's shown you to be in his word? Where are you? Oh, I pray that you do not move further away because he will let you. He will let you. And yet, for us who are the strugglers, for us who are the strugglers, we, we, we want to know Jesus better. We want to do the right thing. We want to walk in the light as he is in the light, yet we are so dull at times. We shake our heads and say, how, how can I be this dull? We are in the boat with the disciples. And the signs that Jesus do, does for us here is for our benefit. He will, if you continue to cling to him, he will reveal more and more and more of himself to you. Now, I want to show you something. This, this is fascinating to me. The signs that Jesus does in the New Testament will not break a hardened heart, no matter how many signs appear. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to do a quick couple verses. It's only going to take five minutes, but I want to show you, Jesus has already been showing the signs, and watch their reaction to these miraculous, unbelievable, unexplainable signs. And listen, even those who have given themselves over to this kind of hard-hearted belief it doesn't matter how good you argue. It doesn't matter how penetrating your gospel presentation. It doesn't matter how much conviction, even with tears, you plead. The signs, humanly speaking, will not be enough. It takes God to break in and create life out of deadness. All right, so John 10, Jesus is in opposition. I'm going to travel through John just a tiny bit. Jesus is in opposition to the religious leaders and the unbelieving skeptics of his day. And Jesus says to the crowd, who are opposed to him? If I am doing the works of my Father, remember the signs, the miracles, the casting out of demons, then, then do not believe me. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, if I do God's works, even though you do not believe me, believe what? The works, the signs, he's showing them the signs that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So he's saying, look, I'm doing all these works so that your eyes might be open, that you might see that I have come from God and he is working through me precisely to open your eyes that you might come to me and have life, yet you refuse to come to me. Now, a lot of text there. Don't be nervous. It's the, the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus dies, and Jesus raises him from the dead. He is dead many days to the point where his body is decomposing. And with a word, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes walking out of the tomb full of grave clothes wrapped like a mummy. And he says, unwrap them. Unwrap up. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, this is Lazarus' sister Mary and Martha, had seen what he did and believed in him. That's what should happen. They see the raising of Lazarus, they see the sign, they see the miracle, and it should produce belief. But some, look, went to the Pharisees, there's that opposition group, and told him what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered counsel together and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. You see the hypocritical nature of give us a sign from heaven. Many signs this man performs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Do you see the danger of the leaven here that he is warning the disciples about? This, it's clear if we let this go on, everyone's going to believe. So it's not just that they won't believe, but they don't want others to believe either. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they're looking to keep their power and their traditions and their culture, etc. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. 
Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. I love it. Speaking more than he knows. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. I love it. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. See, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, got a visit from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit made him share the gospel. (laughs) What's the gospel? That one man should die so that we don't have to. So that the whole nation doesn't have to die. So that the Messiah doesn't die in vain. And you know what? Gentiles too. The feeding of the 4,000, the the teaching for three days, the revealing of himself to the sheep who are not of this fold, the Jewish fold. Gather them into one flock. Now, there's the gospel. Friends, we need to see Jesus as the Messiah who suffered first to take care of our sin problem. He died on the cross to take care of the wall that was between us and the Father. We cannot know the Father until we go through the act of Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Unless we turn from our sins and ask Him to be merciful to us and forgive us our many trespasses, We cannot know Jesus. We cannot know God in relation that we should. We can know him as judge. We can know him as the holy creator. But we can't know him as father. And we can't know Jesus as big brother. But you can. And you must. You must give yourself to the mercy of Jesus. He substituted himself on the cross for you. And the greatest sign that was ever accomplished, he rose from the dead. He conquered death. That whoever believes in him will also with him conquer death. This is what comes next. But look, the signs keep increasing. And so from that day on, they, the religious opposition, made plans to put him to death. Now look at this. It thickens. This is later. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but to see Lazarus. He, he, he died. He was dead for three days, and now he's alive. Whom he had raised from the dead. Look at this. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. So, so not only do we not want this sign to happen, We need to kill Jesus and the evidence. Because if we don't do something, everyone's going to believe on account of these signs. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Isn't that good news? So the signs weren't a flop. They weren't a dud. They were accomplishing their purpose for those whom God had chosen before the foundation of the world. For whom God has mercy on. The signs were doing their trick. People were believing. And so what he says to the disciples, and we're going to close here. What he says to the disciples is, listen, guys, you don't understand how serious this is. You are merely thinking on surface level, physical realities, and I'm speaking of something much, much deeper. You're worried about bread. What did I just show you? How many loaves the first time? How many loaves the second time? How many baskets the first time? How many baskets the second time? You don't think I could take this one loaf and we can have dinner? Come on, guys. Wake up, is what he's saying to them. No, I'm trying to teach you about far greater dangers than not having dinner. There is a hard-hearted disbelief that will send you to hell, disciples. Don't let it permeate you. Don't be dull and ununderstanding. Don't be so power-hungry that you miss me. Don't be so self-righteous that you miss me. Don't be so self-absorbed that you miss me. Watch out for the leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And so the question he ends with is, do you not yet understand? And what's the answer? No, they don't. 
No, they don't. But see, we have opportunity to understand. Because we know now from our vantage point what they did not know at this stage. We can see from the resurrection, friends. But the same warning applies to us. Because listen, we looked at the parable of the soils already. Did we not? And there are many things out there, many other things that want to choke the gospel from your life. And the many things can be good things. Rest and relaxation, career, family life, investments, etc. Things that Proverbs would say yes and amen to. But listen, they cannot become small g gods that you worship because God will give you over to them. And if you're his children, he will smash the idols. Have any of you had any idols smashed? It hurts, doesn't it? But God is a jealous God. And if we are his, he will not let us, I'm going to be real crass here, whore around with other lesser gods. No, he will smash them. So what I'm not saying in a weird way is, hey, you need to be careful if you want to keep your stuff and keep your career and like, keep family life smooth. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, listen to what Jesus has been saying and what Mark has been saying to us through this gospel, that there are many dangers on the road of faith. And just because you're in, and oh, I pray all of us are in, it doesn't mean there's not dangers, snor- sn- toils and snares along the way. I just created a, uh, a J.R.R. Tolkien gremlin. So here's what I want us to do. This, this is part one. Next week will be part two. I'm preaching again next week. And so we're going to see the further opening of the disciples' eyes next week. Not just that their ears are being opened, but their eyes will begin to be opened. And I pray that with this part one and part two, that we will also have our ears further open and our eyes further widened, and we will come to know Jesus in a deeper and fuller way. And by knowing him, love him, and by loving him, want to keep his commands. Want to walk in a way that pleases him. Want to walk in a way that is moving out from us and showing compassion and love to neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself, as we have been so loved. At this time, we're going to take communion, and we're going to sing a closing song. And so, Justin and Eddie are going to come around with the communion elements, and uh, our, our deal here at Eternal City is that if you know the Lord savingly, then we want you to celebrate what the Lord has done for you. We believe this is uh, a command of God for our building up of the faith, and it's our weekly proclamation of the Lord's death until He comes, because He said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim You say something about, you physically display the Lord's death until He comes. So we want to proclaim and worship and enjoy and have our faith strengthened by this means of grace that God has given us. And so maybe tonight you're on the fence. My encouragement would be, listen, jump over the fence onto the right side. Go all in. What are you waiting for? Why are you hanging around on the edge? Go all in. Express your repentance and your faith by taking communion with us and celebrating what Jesus has done for us by the cross and resurrection and his perfect life lived. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And at the close of the song, I will come back up, and I will lead us all in taking communion together as one church. We will celebrate what the Lord has done for us. But let's pray. Father, thank you for this gift of communion. Father, we thank you for the means of communion and for the picture that communion is. Jesus as a substitute, his body broken, his blood shed. Oh God, we thank you for Jesus in our place. Father, may this good news story never get old to us. May we never get apathetic with this good news story. May we rejoice every time we hear it, and may we celebrate it every time we sing it and hear it preached and read it once again. Oh God, we thank you that this act of Jesus' substitution on the cross was not just a symbol 
for us. It was not just an example for us. No, Father, this was the very means by which we would be made right with you. And Father, we respond, we receive this gift of love, this gift of sacrifice. For Father, you so love the world that you gave your son Jesus that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And Father, we want to rejoice in this life that we have and we want to live it out before others that others might have opportunity to have it too. So we pray, visit us now by your spirit as we sing and as we take communion. Help us to remember all we've had and may we draw a line in the sand tonight and move forward with you and wake up out of our spiritual sleepiness. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Would you please stand?